And welcome back to Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. I am Justin. And I'm Josh. What's been going on, man? You know, not too much, man. Uh, Clearly, happily, the Blues are still going since our last podcast. Yeah. Big game tonight. So be excited for that. What about you guys? Yeah, pretty much the same. School year's out, so uh, got a little more free time on our hands. So we're going to knock out quite a few podcast things. Yes, definitely be listening to the podcast in the next few weeks. So what have you been watching nerding out on recently yeah so i've been on the show called sneaky pete it is in its third season it's an amazon prime show it's starring giovanni ribisi Margot martindale did you do justified oh yeah 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 so she was in justified uh she was in the americans she's awesome in the she's just an awesome actress in general yeah shane mccray and lee bay barber also star in the show so i like love giovanni ribisi um (laughs) Have you seen Ted? Yes. Okay. He's so the he, bad guy. He's well, yeah, he's the bad guy, but he's the creepy the creepy dad, Donnie. He's also, you know, Frank Buffet for you friends fans out there. And then it's kind of a real nerd reference. Kip Rains. Awesome. Gone, gone in sixty seconds. Awesome. You like movie. That one? Yes. <laughs> Almost gets his big brother killed. Yep, that's true. Yeah. So a little bit more about Sneaky Pete. Um Brian Cranston created the series and he stars in season one. Like I said earlier, there's three seasons on Prime now. The kind of the background of the story, a con man is on the run from a vicious gangster, takes cover by assuming the identity of his prison cellmate, whose name is Pete, and he reunites with Pete's estranged family, and that threatens to drag him into a world just as dangerous as the one he's escaping. So Giovanni Ribisi's name is Marius Jasipovic. He takes on the identity of Pete and cons a family. So is this like a comedy? It's kind of like a dramedy. There's some yeah. comedy, but it's more of a drama. It's really cool. All right, well, to check that out. I've been watching this television show on YouTube Premium called Cobra Kai. Brings back some memories, man. Right. So if you've ever seen The Karate Kid. The original, not the Jaden Smith one. That's true, yes. The original with Ralph Macchio. Um, This is, yeah, this is a real throwback. Came out in May 2018. Uh, Basically, it's about, it's it's decades after the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament bout, which they refer to a lot, where you've got Daniel LaRusso, again, played by Ralph Macchio, and Johnny Lawrence, um, played by uh, Billy Zapka, and they are rivals again. And you know, Billy Zapka is old Johnny Lawrence opening up a Cobra Kai again. And Larusso, of course, thinks that he's up to no good, so he opens up his competing uh, Miyagi Do dojo. Question: Yes, does Machio wear a shower costume? So I don't want to. I really don't want to give. Too wow, many. does? And I'm not saying he does. I am. I will say that there are so many fun throwbacks to the original couple movies. I mean, not even just the first one. I mean, it's the first three, and there are there are costumes, there are themes, kind of running with kind of running through the entire show. They both take on a, a new apprentice, um, and 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 you don't really know who to root for. That's what's so fun about this. Interesting. I mean, I think before in the original movie, unless you were to ask. Uh, um, Barney Stinson, Billy Zapka, you could probably agree that was the bad guy. Yeah, Cobra Kai was the bad, the bad group, um, and Ralph Macchio. But in this instance, I, I think there's a lot more more gray lines. You're kind of rooting for Johnny Lawrence. Um, it's it's a drama, but it's also a comedy. You know, I guess we could say dramedy. It's not quite as dramatic though. I would imagine as Sneaky Pete. Um, there have been two seasons so far, and season three comes out next year. And if you like Karate Kid, you will freaking love this show awesome 
looking forward to it. Yeah. So, so all right. So I guess let's let's get into what we're going to do today, right? Yeah. So we kind of sat down and thought to ourselves, Josh especially as kind of a history history buff, and and you know I'm really into movies. We both are. We thought it would be fun was to pick a couple movies that are pretty historically accurate, and a few that are pretty historically inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to start with our accurate films. The first one we chose is Apollo 13. Classic movie. Yeah. And, and what's, what's nice is we've, all, we've seen all four of these movies, both of us. Yeah, so we did our homework this time. We're we stepping did. up our game. We are stepping up our game, so we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, so real quick about Apollo 13. Basically, the idea behind it is that NASA is devising a strategy to return Apollo 13 in 1970 to Earth, safely after the spacecraft undergoes massive internal damage. And the whole idea of Apollo 13 is supposed to be, what, the second voyage to put people on the moon, right? Second or third. Apollo 11 was the first one, so I don't know if there's an Apollo 12. I don't think Apollo 12 made it. Some issues went down, and then Apollo 13 was supposed to, and so they got into space, and all of a sudden, you know, things start going. Or did they? That's true. Some people say (laughs) conspiracies. Well, we're going to stick with uh, they did, in fact, get to space, and all these issues happen. Came out in on June thirtieth, nineteen ninety five, and directed by Ron Howard. And I didn't know this until uh, doing some research on it. Jim Lovell and Jeffrey Kluger actually wrote the book that this is based off of, and then William Broyles and Al Reinhardt wrote the screenplay. Okay. Yeah, and Apollo thirteen was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It won for the Best Film Editing and the Best Sound. It stars Tom Hanks as Jim Lovell. Bill Paxton, R.I.P., as Fred Hayes, Kevin Bacon as Jack Swigert, Gary Sinise as Ken Mattingly, and Ed Harris as Gene Kranz. Some famous taglines from the movie, A, failure is not an option, and B, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, and that's such an iconic line, which we'll talk about here a little bit later on. So, kind of get into some nerd facts about this, this film. Uh, like I mentioned, it was based on a book. The name of the book is The Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13. It was published in 1994. The actual Apollo 13 launched in April 11th, or on April 11th, 1970, and it landed April 17th, 1970. So in case you haven't seen this, I just ruined a massive spoiler, and that is that they do, in fact, make it back. And you know what's crazy? The thing is it only lasts six days, because when you're watching the movie... It seems like it just takes forever. Right. But I'm sure it did when they were in space thinking we're going to die. Yeah. So, um, so Jim Lovell wore his... Lovell. Lovell, yeah. Lovell. Yeah. <laughs> wore his old Navy's captain uniform in the scene where he greets the astronauts aboard the USS Iwo Jima. When Ron Howard asked Lovell if he'd like to be in the film as a ship's admiral, Lovell agreed but pointed out, I retired as a captain. A captain I will be. Yeah, and this, this guy, I mean, Tom Hanks portrayed Jim Lovell... Um, and actually had an asteroid named after him um, called 12818 Tom Hanks, which was named to honor him in 1996. How awesome is Tom Hanks? So Yeah, he's amazing. Um, And and as we'll talk about later on, he just got so much praise for his portrayal of Jim Lovell. Yeah, so Ron Howard stated that after the first test preview of the film, one of the comment cards indicated total disdain. The audience member had written that it was a typical Hollywood ending and that the crew would never have survived. Interesting, yeah. because it's a true story. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, Brad Pitt actually turned down a role to star in the film. Um, he chose to star in Seven in 1995, which was you know a good role for him. 
what role do you think he would have played? I think he's so iconic in seven. It's just hard for me to see him not as in well, seven. You know, I, well, let's pretend he could he could have done them both hypothetically. What role do you think he would have been best in in this film? Oh, in the film, yeah, in Apollo thirteen. I think Kevin Bacon's character. Yeah, I, I think the Kevin Bacon character would be his. That's that's kind of where I was yeah. going to. I think that the, I I did read somewhere that um, Gary Sinise was also a role. He was maybe mm-hmm. going to be Ken Mattingly. So I don't know. think about that, yeah. audience. So then John Cusack and Charlie Sheen, some pretty famous actors, were originally offered the role of Fred Hayes, who was played by Bill Paxton, but they both turned it down. And I just, <laughs> I just love Bill Paxton. Um, he actually uh, said a really funny line in the film. Um, he says, I could eat the ass out of a dead rhinoceros, which in fact was not really said by Fred Hayes. It's kind of a, a you know, comedic part of the movie. Um, it was made up the day of filming by Gary Busey. <laughs> I put this in here because Gary Busey is crazy, and I just think that line is just very fitting. Like, of course, Gary Busey said this. He, he's bidding, visiting the set at the time, and he just thought it would. They just thought it would be a good country boy line. Um, he actually also said this line previously. This is a, another reason why I put this in here. Uh, he said this earlier in Point Break, which is a movie that this podcast has already covered. Yeah, and that you love. I know. I love that movie. Right. So there you go. You're welcome. Um, so what did you think? What are your, what are your overall thoughts? We're going we're to break down some accuracy points, but what did you think about the film and, and the rendition? You know, so from what I've researched, I think it was done well. You know, looking at it, they did the moon landing. They didn't do the moon landing, but they did the crash well. They did, um, gosh, who, Gary Sinise's character being in there saving everything. As I read a story once about how that was all true. So my overall mm-hmm. feeling with the movie is it was very well done. I've watched so many documentaries about just everything space-related. From the Earth to the Moon is just an amazing kind of miniseries that Tom Hanks, of course, produced. They do a bunch of, uh, like, the 60s and 70s. Have you seen those CNN? I specials? have not seen them. Well, I'm only bringing that, those up because I feel like having seen this movie a long time ago and rewatched it, it just, it just seems like everything was, was just spot on. Yeah. And I think after doing some research that we're going to talk about, I think our overall thoughts were correct. Yeah. So, I mean, tell us what some, what were some of the reactions? So Jim Lovell, when he saw the film, he found that the CGI worked so convincing that he firmly believed that the filmmakers had uncovered some hit here to unseen NASA footage. He also told the New York times shortly after the movie's premiere in 95, that everything was correct. The instrument panels, the console switches, that's exactly what it looks like inside. Yeah. And, and, if you watch the film, there's a, there's a commentary track. Marilyn Lovell, uh, his wife, comments that Tom Hanks exactly portrays Jim's mannerisms in the style of movement. And really the only thing that, that didn't happen is that Tom Hanks uses some profanity, and in real life, um, Lovell was kind of the Boy Scout and did not use profanity at all. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and so then set designers look through the Lovell's old family photographs to recreate their house from 1969, so the layout of their house was correct. Also, Jim Lovell, we're focusing a lot on him because he's basically the main character of the movie. He's actually left-handed, but Tom Hanks refused to write with his left hand for the movie. So that's a little inaccuracy, but hard to blame. We won't hold that against Tom Hanks. Yeah. There were exact replicas of the Apollo 13 modules and control rooms built. Howard actually filmed zero gravity scenes in 25-second burst on the same KC-135 airplane that NASA used to train astronauts. So, like, I mean, they basically replicated it, essentially, like, what really would happen. 
Yeah, and then in some scenes where the Earth can be seen from the windows of Apollo 13, it is actually one of the photos that were taken by Jim Lovell and Bill Anders on the Apollo 8 mission. So this was not Lovell's first time in space. Yeah, and those are kind of iconic scenes where they're like looking out over the horizon of the Earth, and you've got this picturesque photograph of Earth. And the fact that's that the real picture taken is is pretty cool. And there are just so many, all the plot scenes, like the tense plot parts, um, are the same. So even though like what the reviewers said, like there's no way this is true, it's like too Hollywood, it really did happen. There, the, there was a giant CO2 buildup they had to fix. They had to jerry-rig this, this, this thing out of parts in the cabin called a mailbox, and that really did happen, um, which is just crazy to think that they were able to kind of you know, survive this, this tragedy um, and, and, you know, like, 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 like the guy said, like, this is too Hollywood. I don't know. It, real life doesn't happen very often. Well, and just think about because in the movie, Garrison Isi's character is supposed to go, but he gets sick. Right. And then he ends up the one that is saving them by working on the ground, which would seem Hollywood, but it's, it's true. Right. You can't make that up. Yeah. So a big inaccuracy in the movie, which is kind of depressing to me because it's such a massive line. None of the Apollo 13 astronauts actually said, Houston, we have a problem. Which is funny because it's become the number 50 on an American Film Institute list of top movie quotes in all American cinema. Yeah, it's just so iconic and never happened. Yeah. All right. So let's move into um, our next movie of accuracy, which is 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Some general info. This was directed by Michael Bay, which... Yeah, a lot of stuff does blow up in this movie. I know it's kind of Michael Bay's calling card. Yeah, it it, it doesn't feel like a typical Michael. I mean, there are definitely some elements of Michael Bayness. Well, there's no like transforming robots or yeah, anything. I think that's why it feels a little bit different. Yes, um, came out in January of 2016, and it stars John Krasinski from The Office and uh, Jack Ryan as Jack Silva, James Badge Dale, The Departed, and Iron Man Three. Also, he was in 24 season three for all you old school 24 fans. Mm-hmm. As Tyrone, Roan Woods, Pablo Schreiber from Orange is the New Black. Have you seen that TV show? I have seen the first couple seasons, and yeah. then I kind of quit watching after it. My wife is really into that. Mm-hmm. Pablo Pablo is one of the better characters. In the, I mean, he's not a good character. Like he's Is a he bad, the guard? Or yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a terrible person. Uh, Pornstash is his name. Nice. But he's an interesting, funny character. He's Chris Tanto Peranto and David Denman from The Office, which we'll talk about a little bit later, as David Boone Benton. Uh, so this is based on 13 Hours, the inside account of what really happened in Benghazi, which is a book written by Mitchell Zukoff in 2014. The screenplay is also written by Chuck Hogan, who um, wrote The Town as well. Such an awesome movie. Are you a fan of that movie? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Even I though I have Red Sox love, whatever. We're not really anything Boston right now I kind of hate. but Yeah, the film itself, though, is pretty good. Yes. So kind of the background of the story. It's set in Libya in 2012 at an unofficial CIA base in Benghazi. A group of ex-military contractors are providing security. In the aftermath of Gaddafi's downfall, a power vacuum exists, and the climate is volatile. The U.S. ambassador to Libya, Chris Stevens, makes a visit to the area, staying in a compound near a CIA base. On the night of 11 September 2012, so 11 years after 9-11, the ambassador's compound is attacked by hordes of heavily armed locals. The only forces willing and able to defend it are six CIA contractors. This like, is a very, sorry, but a very controversial topic for you political nerds out there. Like, my, I'm kind of a nerd of all hats, history nerd, politics nerd. Very, very controversial topic, this movie. But we're just going to talk about the accuracy of it. Yeah. 
But when you read that synopsis, like it does sound like a Michael Bay film, yes, right? Yes, definitely. For like, sure. Only six CIA contractors were there to defend this compound. And you're just waiting for like Optimus Prime to show up and save the day. Yeah, and like the title like just explodes with bombs like coming yeah. this fall. Yeah, so let's get on some nerd facts about 13 Hours. I watched this last night, so I'm kind of up to date on mm-hmm. it again. To prepare for his role of Jack Silva, John Krasinski's body weight dropped from 25% body fat to 8% body fat. And if you, I mean, we've all seen The Office, and this is kind of like his first role after The Office, one of them. It was very hard to go from, for me to go from Jim to Jack Silva, the Navy SEAL, but he did a great job. He pulled it off. I think it's kind of a risky cast, if you ask me. Yeah. Like, he's not exactly an action mm-hmm. film star. But I think this movie helps bring him to, you know, The Quiet Place, to Jack Ryan. So Yeah, no, 100% agree. The original cut of the film was four hours long. Can you imagine no. watching that? I, aren't the Transformer movies like three hours? Some of them, I think. Michael Bay likes his long movie. Pearl Harbor is really long. Yeah, Pearl Harbor is really long. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So to- three and a half hours too long. Yes. So Toby Stevens, who plays a Navy SEAL in the movie, was a good friend of the real like real life Jack Silva, which was Krasinski's character. I should also say that that's not his real name. Jack Silva is not his real name. It's an identity. We still don't know who he actually was. Mm-hmm. Then when washing up... After the initial attack, Roan puts a picture in the flap of his ballistic vest, and this is actually a picture of Tyrone Woods and his infant son. Huh. Well, actually, you know, uh, speaking of Roan, Mark Wahlberg was actually the first choice to portray him, but he had Park Minutes. So do you think he would have been a good... I think he would. I think Mark Wahlberg's pretty much awesome in anything he's in. Yeah. Maybe he was tired of Michael Bay. Uh, I don't know when the next Transformers came out. I don't know. <laughs> But. Yeah, I know it was after that, I think. Well, actually, I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I do like James Badgedale. Yes. But I, I think that uh, Mark Wahlberg would have been would have been good in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to prepare for his role, speaking of Badgedale, as Tyrone Woods, he met with the real Jack Silva. He also got to know Tyrone's mother. And after Tyrone's mother saw the movie, she told James that they did it right. So spoiler alert, Tyrone is one of the ones that dies. So. Yeah, they don't all make it out safely yes. like in Apollo 13. Yeah. Um, John, speaking of John Krasinski again, he his character wears the Punisher emblem on his bulletproof vest. Same thing that Chris Kyle does in real life. Well, I don't know if he does it in real life, but he definitely does it in the American Sniper movie. Which is also um, a good movie. Which is a really good movie, yeah. I'm not sure how historically accurate that one is. We'd have to talk about that, yeah. yeah. Send us in what you think about that one. Be curious. Definitely. Contact us. Yeah. So, so then Glenn Bob Doherty who was played by Toby Stevens, which you're a big Black Sails fan, correct? Oh, yeah. So Toby Stevens is Flint yep. in Black Sails, which is just an awesome show. Mm-hmm. He was one of the – so his character, Glenn Bub Doherty, was one of the Navy SEAL snipers involved with freeing Captain Richard Phillips, a la the movie Captain Phillips. He, along with two other SEAL snipers, shot the Somali pirates through a tiny window in the escape craft as it bobbed up and down, all without harming the captain. So that's – I mean, it's pretty cool to think – that he was involved in all this stuff. You really got to thank these guys for what they do. You know, it's just Memorial Day on Monday. Yeah. So very cool to see that. Mm-hmm. So then John Krasinski, David Denman, and David Costabil all start in The Office. Obviously, John Krasinski played Jim Halpert. Denman played Roy, who competed for Pam's heart. Roy obviously was Pam's first fiance. He treated her terribly. Jim kind of comes in and takes over. So I just thought that was an interesting casting right yeah. there. 
Yeah, totally. And again, I don't necessarily think you you think of of him as being also an action star. Yeah, yeah. Um, Denman. I mean, he's in this movie called Big Fish with. Uh, um, I'm blanking on his name right now. That's like a movie. I, yeah, I had to watch that movie in school when I was a kid. I think. Oh, really? That's, I think that's so. A weird bu- movie in an in Afton English class. Okay. I can't remember who my teacher was. Oh, lit through film. One Possibly that might okay. have been. Um, well, anyway, he's not considered an action star either. So, like, I think this was really unique casting, and I think it worked out pretty well. Most people would agree. Speaking of the caster, or at least the director, this is actually Michael Bay's lowest grossing film as of 2016. And it is the third drama film that he's done um, based on real-life events. So there's Pearl Harbor in 2001 and Pain and Gain in 2013. you seen that one? I love Pain and Gain. Again, I think, it? yes, I love that movie. I think if we were going to do that on a podcast, from what I, I've seen in the movie, that'd have to be on the inaccurate side of, of I, it. I don't know about that. I think I've, I've read some articles about it, and while there's definitely uh, – over dramatization. I think a lot of the things that they do to the the person they kidnap is accurate. The Rock is just so awesome in that movie. Like He's they're just hilarious. Up on on steroids and drugs and and you know just pumping yeah. and and it's 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 insane. Watch that one immediately. It's great. Yeah, and then so a final nerd fact here: during a rescue attempt, there is a scene when a Libyan fighter introduces himself to John Krasinski's character, and he says to John Krasinski, "Hello, Captain America." John Krasinski actually auditioned to play Captain America for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but the role eventually was given to Chris Evans. How do you think he would have been as Captain America? I've seen like uh, photographs of you know his face being replaced in, in certain you know iconic scenes from the films, and I like he would have done well. Mm-hmm. Chris Evans does an awesome job. So yeah, to, I'm not taking away from Chris Evans; yeah. he's great. But and again, my nerd credentials should be provoked, revoked. I still have not seen the Avengers. Yeah, going tomorrow to fix that mistake. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. Yes. So let's just kind of talk about a few things as far as overall thoughts and accuracy. Uh, first off, you kind of mentioned this already, but the real-life um, service members, Chris Peranto and John Tegan, said the actors portrayed them perfectly, down to their mannerisms. So they were impressed. Yeah, and so one of the big controversies, not only in the movie but in real life, was how the contractors were told to stand down. So in the, ver- in the movie, it's clearly like shown that they were told to stand down. A 2014 report by the House Intelligence Committee said there was no truth to a widespread claim that a CIA response team was ordered to stand down after the State Department compound came under attack. Also, a report by Republicans in the House Armed Services Committee also said no restrictions were placed on a military response. However, both Chris Peranto and John Tegan are adamant in the fact that they were told to stand down. It's in their book. So... I tend to go with the people that were there on the ground, personally. Um, yeah, a few of these are not necessarily inaccuracies in the book to film rendition. Yes. These are more like that whole, you know... You know what, what politics do you believe, right. you know? And like I What's said... What's considered I, controversial? Like, yeah, who do you believe? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, kind of to add on to that, another part in the film where the uh, CIA analyst tells, um, basically, okay, we are... We're asking for military support, but the military support never came. Um, what happened or what was claimed by the former defense secretary, Leon Panetta, is that they tried to move quickly, um, but it didn't arrive until 15 hours after the first two attacks. And their response or their reasoning was that, quote, time distance, the lack of an adequate warning, events that move very quickly on the ground prevented a more immediate response. Um, 
And then later on he said, you can't willy-nilly send F-16s there and blow the hell out of a place. You have to have good intelligence. So again, this is the what they're claiming in the book and what happened in the film, in their minds are accurate. And then the politicians are maybe saying something different. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's just what they're trying to convince the their constituents, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying yay or nay. Or yeah, it's hard to take one side, but again, I, I kind of go with the guys that were there. I mean, who had the who were the ones actually who could have been killed and in, in the fighting? They're probably not saying, you know what? Maybe you should bomb the crap out of this place. Right. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. We don't know. We're not uh, politicians. So there's one more. Yes. So the movie repeatedly makes the point that the diplomatic post where Stevens and spoiler alert, the ambassador does die in the movie. Where Stevens and Smith were killed was poorly protected, and that the State Department security agents knew that they could not defend it from a well-armed attack. The facts. The House Intelligence Report and other inquiries, including one by an independent panel, agree with them. Numerous reports have found that requests for security improvements at the mission were not acted upon in Washington, and accountability review board appointed by the State Department concluded that the systematic management, and leadership failures of the agency led to grossly inadequate security at the Benghazi mission, which is kind of crazy. That's one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Right. And you send our ambassador in there with very little protection. Yeah, and then they've done some some studies, basically, review boards, and said, well, not so good for yeah. everyone, right? All right, so those are the two films that we found were, we think, portrayed pretty accurately. So let's talk about the ones that we believe and and the the the, the uh, critics have said are pretty inaccurate. So and, and I have to say these are two of my all time favorite movies. I love these movies. Yeah, these no, these are fantastic movies. But when you start doing some research on them, it's like wow, there is yes, really, don't believe what you see. There are a lot of things that are different. Um, so the first one we chose was Braveheart. Great movie, right? Yes. So Braveheart debuted in 1995. It was directed by Mel Gibson. It was his third director credit. First non-documentary was The Man Without a Face. And it was written by Randall Wallace, who also wrote We Were Soldiers, which is a great movie, Pearl Harbor, and, and this is one of my just, like, bad movies that I love, (laughs) The Man and the Iron Mask. You like that movie? Well, that's another one that, you know, it's based on true story. Quote, unquote, yes. Based on a true story, right? Um, About, who, who was it again? King Louis Philippe. Louis, Louis Philippe, right. And, yeah, I, I am entertained by that film, but some of the things they claim are pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and Leonardo DiCaprio plays two people. It's great. Love the movie. Right. Kind of not real, though. So you're going to hear this name a lot, obviously. It stars Mel Gibson as William Wallace, Sophie Marceau as Princess Isabella of France, who is also in The World Is Not Enough. A Bond, Bond film. film. Angus McFadden. He plays Robert the Bruce. He was interred wow, as Robert Rogers. I never put that together. I, I threw that on there specifically yes. for you. I thought you liked that. Patrick McCoogan, or McGoo, I'm sorry, McGuhan, as King Edward, quote, Longshanks. He's also in A Time to Kill as the judge. Or, have you seen Time to Kill? Yes. Yeah. Read the book, seen the movie, great. Yeah. Brendan Gleeson, he plays Hamish. He um, was also in Kings, or I'm sorry, uh, Gangs of New York. He played Mad-Eye Moody in Harry Potter. And then we've got David O'Hara as Stephen of Ireland, who was in the film Wanted. Did you ever see that? Yes. As Mr. Rex. Interesting. Yeah. It won the Oscar for Best Picture, and Mel Gibson won the Oscar for Best Director. Right. So, storyline, essentially, William Wallace has a secret bride. 
he uh, his bride is executed for assaulting an English soldier who tries to rape her, and William Wallace begins a revolt against King Edward I of England. Yeah, and the film, kind of like Justin just said, is fictionally based on the life of Wallace, leading the Scots in the First War of Scottish Independence against King Edward I of England. The film takes place from 1280 to 1314. Right. So let's talk a few nerd facts. First off, Mel Gibson actually initially turned down the role of William Wallace. He thought he was too old for the part. But Paramount Pictures basically said, we're only going to finance this film if he... If you, Mel Gibson, are playing the lead role. So he said yes. And ironically, after the recent Game of Thrones controversy, several major battle scenes had to be reshot because extras were wearing sunglasses and wristwatches. Right. Take a lesson, Game of Thrones. That's right, yeah. It's It's on the director. Wallace's two most trusted captains throughout the film are Hamish, who is Scottish, and Stephen, who is Irish in real life. However... I'm sorry, no, let me say that again. Hamish, who is Scottish in the film, and Stephen, who is Irish in the film. However, Hamish was played by Irish actor Brendan Gleeson and Stephen by Scottish actor David O'Hara. Yeah. And although playing father and son, James Cosmo and Brendan Gleeson are only seven years apart in age. So this, this next one I think is super interesting. King Edward I, he was called Longshanks because he had very long legs, and he was uh, at least 6'2" which is, was considered uncommonly tall for people in that time. William Wallace, however, was even taller at 6'5", and Mel Gibson is definitely not 6'5". No. And, you know, I just have to add in here, I read a whole book about Edward I called The Great and Terrible King. The movie does really do a good job of showing how much he hated Wallace. Really? Yeah. So I, I just, to throw that in there as my history nerd self. Yeah, and that definitely comes across pretty yes. well. Yes. And so then, just as an... Interesting nerd fact here. Sir Sean Connery turned down the role of King Edward I because he was filming Just Cause, which was in 1995. Which I think he... I just can't picture him being that... Evil? Yeah. Evil, yeah. Yeah. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. uh, He's played kings before. He was a king in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He was. He was Prince Richard. He was also a king in King Arthur. King Arthur, of so, And the Knights, Round, whatever the name of that movie yeah, was, Richard Gere. It was just called King Arthur. Yeah, great movie. That's a great movie. Yeah, it's, it's entertaining. I'll yeah. give that to you. All right, so let's talk some overall thoughts and accuracy, which we've got a lot of stuff here on, on Braveheart. Yeah, so I remember just when I was a kid being like, oh my gosh, this movie is so true. But then as you get older and you start reading, you're like, wow, great movie. But man, they got a lot of stuff wrong. Yeah, I was like, man, William Wallace is the best person ever born. I know. Like, and he wasn't talking at the end when the Scots won their independence. All kinds of crazy stuff. So let's uh, let's get into it here. So much of William Wallace's life has now been steeped in myth, where in actuality very little is known about him. Most of what we do know, deriving from primary accounts, centers around the battles from 1297 to 1298, and then when he was captured, spoiler alert, in August 1305. Right, so a big part of what they're wearing, kilts, did actually not become a popular form of menswear until well into the 17th century, which basically means that their portrayal is pretty inaccurate. Another inaccuracy of dress is that the English soldiers are shown wearing uniforms, while such was not in fact the custom in Wallace's age. Um, 
marital dress code didn't become a norm in England until the, the 17th century. Marshall. What? Marshall dress code. Oh, Marshall dress code. Yeah, that's what I meant. Well, marital dress code, too. Yeah. That's not, that's not true. Mar- <laughs> Marshall dress code. Soldiers pretty much would wear anything they could get their hands on, and that's not how they're depicted in the film at all. Yeah, you know, sometimes they didn't even have weapons. Right. Like, and it was a struggle for the king to get an army together because he had to pay everybody, and that had to be approved by the parliament. So, yeah, that's yeah. kind of they're, – they're showing, like, this amazing, well-disciplined army, and that's just not, in the fact, true. Right, yeah, I know – yeah, the English the English soldiers are really dressed to the nines, right? They yeah. These amazing uniforms on and, and – Swords and, and bows and arrows and everything else. When in actuality, they're all peasants, right. all, you know, who have nothing. Yeah. So then, Primanactus, which is basically that a lord or the king of England has a right to sleep with any woman he wants on her wedding night, which is a huge part of the movie, is apparently considered by most historians as a bit of a historical urban myth. There's plenty of writings that allude to it, but very little scholarly evidence that it was ever actually used by any rulers. Certainly, during Wallace's time, Primanactus was never used by Edward the Longshanks to, quote, annoy the Scots. I'll keep this G-rated. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty huge oh, yeah. plot point. That's basically the catalyst of the, of the film. Yeah, we're going to talk about that here in a second, I think, too. So Right. So some other issues. The Irish actually fought against William Wallace. In fact, there's a part where the Irish kind of meet meet the Scots at the middle of the battlefield and they all start shaking hands and, and hugging. And that was definitely not what happened at all. Yeah. Another plot point is that Wallace falls in love with Princess Isabella and that she kind of saves him. But in fact, she did not set foot in England until 1308. Therefore, she could not have been in England to warn Wallace about the upcoming battle of Falkirk. Right. The movie suggests that Wallace's actions in response to his wife's death triggered like a wider rebellion across the English. However, there's already a rebellion going on. So I think this whole concept of like they're the reason why the the rebellion started in the first place, that was already happening. Yeah. And I, and I guess they kind of allude to that. You've got Hamish and they're kind of in the woods and they're they're plotting this rebellion, I guess, sort of. But there's basically eight of them. Yeah. And it was definitely a much larger mm-hmm. larger thing going on. There's also another part where you got this major battle. Actually, you know what? You, you tell us about that battle. Tell us about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So the Battle of Sterling Bridge, which occurred on September 11th, 1297, in the movie, this makes Wallace look like a genius because he tricks the English into marching their heavy cavalry into a trap, which results in the infantry being slaughtered. In reality, the battle was won by the Scottish because the English became trapped on a bridge that was too narrow to get their superior numbers across. Right. Which is interesting because, yeah, in the movie, it's like, oh, William Wallace is a genius. But <laughs> Don't get me wrong. That really worked out well to, for William Wallace, yeah. but that's another key mm-hmm. point. It gets kind of everyone to follow William Wallace, and he's this leader of this giant rebellion, which, again, he was definitely involved with it, at least we think, even though very little is actually known about William Wallace. He definitely existed. But... Yeah, it's definitely over-dramatized at the very least. And there's a great movie called The Outlaw King with yeah. Chris Pine on Netflix that I think is way more accurate than Braveheart. About the same, it's more about Robert DeBruce. Yeah, and I think that's a really good segue. Speaking of Robert DeBruce, he, it's actually unlikely that, that, I mean, he was the former, or the future king of Scotland, leader of the Scottish Revolt. It's unlikely that he 
ever actually betrayed Wallace or Wallace. It's, it's suggested in the film, right? Um, what actually did him in Wallace's failure was lack of Scottish support that basically cost him in battle. And really, Robert the Bruce in many ways was far more successful than William Wallace. He successfully rebelled from the English and Scotland regained its independence under his reign. Yeah, which is interesting when you see the way that Wallace is kind of glorified in the film. And he was actually betrayed, as was suggested in the movie, not by Robert DeBruce, but by a Scottish noble named John de Menneth. And he was captured in 1305. He was put on trial. And his execution in the film, while it's not inaccurate, it's actually pretty tame compared to what was actually done to him. Like other famous traitors, he was hanged, drawn, and quartered. A five-stage punishment where a person was hanged, cut open to expose his intestines, castrated, chopped into pieces, and finally beheaded. Before the execution, Wallace was stripped naked and pulled around town by a horse carriage by a rope around his ankles, and after the execution, he was dipped in tar. The film makes note of how Wallace's body parts and head were put up for public display, which, if you think about it, is kind of crazy. This is accurate. But, yeah, the the British really had a pretty gruesome way of dealing with traitors there. It's interesting to think that the film actually, like, under-depicted it. Yeah, it, it does not feel like that when you're watching Yeah, because it's, it's pretty gruesome and uncomfortable to yeah, watch. Mel Gibson does a really good job of the facial expressions there right. as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's believable. He's being tortured. So after Wallace dies, the movie kind of alludes to him getting some revenge because he impregnated the future consort of the King of England, Edward II's wife, Isabella of France. But in fact, at this point in history, Isabella would have only been nine years old at most, was not yet married, and basically she was certainly, most certainly not in England yet. Yeah, interesting. Also, Prince Edward, who is Longshanks' son, we've kind of talked a little bit about that, but his gay lover in the film, Philip, was thrown out of the window. I don't know if you remember that part. I'm sure you do. It was kind of a iconic part of the movie. Yeah, I like that part a lot. It's funny. Yeah, well, you're liking fiction because right. that never happened. Yeah. So it, it does a good job of showing that Longshanks was this crazy evil dude, but it didn't happen. Well, the one part that is definitely accurate has to do with Robert the Bruce again. You know, for the most part, well, first of all, Wallace did support Robert the Bruce for the throne. Bruce's father, who was Robert the Bruce, Robert the 16th Bruce, he did suffer from leprosy, which is why he couldn't take or make a claim for the throne. And really the most notable fact, and this is not accurate, but it does involve Robert the Bruce, is that the nickname Braveheart actually refers to Robert the Bruce, not William Wallace. And after Robert's death, his heart was literally carried into battle, which gave birth to his nickname Braveheart. Interesting. So the movie should really be about Robert the Bruce. If it's named should have Braveheart. been made about Robert the Bruce, right? Yeah. But, but what would be the fun of that? Then William Wallace couldn't yell freedom, which, in my opinion, one of the greatest movie speeches of all time. I used to watch it before football games oh, to pump myself up. Yeah, get you going. For sure. So let's move into our last movie here. Again, a favorite movie of mine, Gladiator. Gladiator was directed by Ridley Scott. It was released in the year 2000, and it was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. It won five, including Best Picture and Best Actor by Russell Crowe. Yeah, so it stars Russell Crowe, who's also in A Beautiful Mind and Les Mis. Joaquin Phoenix, who was in Walk the Line, Parenthood, To Die For. Uh, Digimon Hansu, 
who was in Amistad. That's pretty much one of his first films, but also recently Guardians of the Galaxy. Also Blood Diamond was a oh, great movie. That's that he right. Was in. That is a really good one. And Connie Nielsen also stars in the film, who was recently in Wonder Woman. And basically the, the point of the film, the whole, I mean, the synopsis is a former Roman general who is named Maximus sets out to exact revenge against the correct emperor who murdered his family and sent him into slavery. Interesting, which, as we'll find out, didn't really happen. But before we get (laughs) into the accuracy, let's look at some nerd facts. So kind of like our last movie we talked about in Braveheart, Mel Gibson thought he was too old to play this role. He was offered the lead role, but he turned it down because he thought he was too old. So Mel Gibson, I guess, likes it going to younger characters. Right, which, I mean, it's nice of him to do, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. One part, one thing in movies I like a lot, television as well, is when people ad-lib scenes, really because you get super accurate reactions for the most part. So there's a line where Joaquin Phoenix screams, am I not merciful? And Connie Nielsen's actual response is, is pretty genuine because she was not expecting it at all. I can't wonder how they feel after that. They're like, you get screamed in your face. You wonder if they're upset. If they're just like, okay, I'm going to go with this. I guess as an actor, you kind of just go with it. I feel like if somebody got up in my face like that and screamed at me, it might like cause me to punch them. I don't know. Well, but, so. but also from like the, the writer or director's perspective, that's got to be kind of frustrating because they have like a, something in mind most, most often, right? Yeah, I would think. Yeah. So then another ad lib, Maximus's description of his home, specifically how the kitchen is arranged and smells in the morning and at night, was ad libbed. It's a description of Russell Crowe's own home in Australia. That's pretty funny. Uh, there were five tigers brought in. This is a pretty icon- iconic scene where Maximus is fighting. And there was a vet armed with tranquilizer darts present the entire time. And for safety's, sakes, or safety's sake, Russell Crowe was kept at least 15 feet away from the tigers at all times. Yeah, what, what happened? Man, Russell Crowe dies in tiger attack uh, on... Yeah, there might be some lawsuits. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's those two magicians that were killed by a tiger, which The Simpsons predicted, Right. for the record. Just, yeah. th- that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> Simpsons predictions of the future that yeah, come true. true. Yeah, President so, Trump being elected. Yeah. That, they predicted that as well. Yeah, and so then Ridley Scott resisted the love triangle between Maximus and his uh, Lucilia Connie Nielsen. Because they thought it would just decrease his need to be with his murdered wife, so they didn't have sex in the movie. Russell Crowe was also against it, feeling that it wasn't in the character, which, yeah, I think it kind of would be corny to do that, to just say, oh, let's have a manufactured romance. I'm so glad they didn't do that. It would have just seemed forced and convoluted and kind of really just against Maximus's character. Yes. Who was just trying to avenge his wife and his kid mm-hmm. the whole time, right? Yeah. So Russell Crowe, he really sacrificed the body for this film. He lost all feeling in his right forefinger for two years after a sword fight. He aggravated an Achilles tendon, a uh, previous injury, he broke a foot bone, he cracked a hip bone, he popped a few bicep tendons. So he got he really got beat up. Yeah, and then even just like the wounds on his face at the beginning battle scene after it, those are real. Like they were caused when his horse backed him in the tree branches and the stitches in his cheek are clearly visible when he's telling Commodus that he's going to leave. So, really gave it his whole effort in this movie. Yeah, yeah, really did. Uh, finally, Hans Zimmer's score is one of the best-selling movie soundtracks of all time. And I owned this back in the day. It was nice. Yeah. It's a good, for me, it's a good, like, writing. Like, when I'm writing my papers, I like to turn that kind of music on and just 
I do a lot of Game of Thrones right now. Yeah. <laughs> so let's. So, keep, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just gonna say, let's break down some thoughts, some accuracy of the film. Like, what do you think? Yeah. So, as a historian person, this movie is frustrating <laughs> if you're taking it as literal fact because it's not. It's very inaccurate. For example, the hero of the film, Maximus, who killed Commodus and was a champion of the people, he never existed. He was not a real person. If you're looking kind of for somebody that might have been parallel to him, uh, Spartacus, the famous gladiator portrayed by Kirk Douglas in a great movie, was a gladiator who turned into a general, but he was going against just the whole emperor, and that was even before there was an empire. It was against the Senate. So kind of a very loose, fitting comparison. Yeah, some other slight inaccuracies. The Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who did actually exist, he died of the plague, not by being smothered by Commodus, who then ascended to the throne. He And Commodus was actually a much-loved emperor by the army and the lower classes until he fav- fell out of favor, which does kind of happen in the film, but very quickly due to his uh, slight egocentric behavior. Yeah, and a fun fact about that is the people who hated him the most were the Senate, which I think is portrayed in the movie. I mean, one of the main conspirers, if that's the word, against him was a senator. So, yeah. Yeah, the Senate's really made to be kind of the good guys here. And I think historically we can agree that the Roman Senate was not yes, they a sucked. good governing body. Yeah, they sucked. Right. So, and in the movie, he Marcus Aurelius names Maximus as his adoptive, adoptive son to take over for him. He did not do that because Maximus wasn't real. And it had even been, in fact, that the previous emperors had named people who were not their sons. The main reason for that is because they didn't have any sons. So they make Marcus Aurelius out to be this terrible guy. Who knows if if the emperors who had sons would have named their emperors their sons emperors. I'm kind of getting off track here, but yeah. Right. So Commodus was already an emperor, actually a co-emperor with Marcus Aurelius. So that whole plot point is moot. Mm-hmm. Makes for a good movie, though. Yeah, try to make it super dramatic. Yeah. He also died in Vienna, Marcus Aurelius, but the film shows him dying in Germania during his campaign. So part that I found interesting that I, I, I guess, you know, the reason why I change things sometimes is because they don't want to confuse the audience, but I, I don't know. This one was kind of silly, I thought. Uh, in, in Roman times, the emperor would put his thumb upwards to signify that a gladiator was going to be spared. Um, or I should say that's the common mis- misconception, mm-hmm. right? So thumbs up actually didn't mean th- uh, spare the person. What it really did mean was the sword action, which meant death. Mm-hmm. And the thumb down meant the sheathed sword, which was mercy. And, of course, you know, we th- think of thumbs up as safe- safety. Yeah. Thumbs down is you're dead. I don't know if that was necessary. I-, I wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to the audience, but, you know. Sometimes I think moviegoers are dumb, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So only 18 at the time of the death of his father, Commodus in reality is described as a tall, muscular, and blonde, which, like, no offense to Joaquin Phoenix, but I don't Do you think he's a tall, muscular guy? He's a little weaselly. Yeah. He trained in gladiatorial combat, boasted 620 victories, normally because, I mean, if you're fighting the emperor, you're going to lose. And he would also, like in the movie, he injures Maximus. That really did happen. He would injure people who he was fighting. Yeah, so his character traits were pretty 
I don't want to say spot on, but definitely yeah. had some similarities. But definitely his physical, not quite the same. His physical appearance. A psychopath, I think is a good word for him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, communist rules in real life for 12 years, whereas in the film, it kind of doesn't really match the timeline. It kind of seems like it's in only a year or two, if that. Yeah, and then kind of to go along with him, his rule, it says that Marcus Aurelius wants to restore the Republic. There's zero evidence that he wanted to do that. He'd already made Commodus his co-emperor with him. He'd already named a a descendant. So I think that is just trying to appeal to modern-day people in the 21st century. Say, hey, this guy's a good guy. Again, kind of like we talked about, give us the benefit of the doubt. You don't need to throw that rosy picture in there. I think we all know that they were kind of crazy back in the day. Right. So Commodus was a victim of assassination, but it was due to a political conspiracy is so much they wanted him gone. First, he was poisoned by his mistress. That didn't work. Then they sent his wrestling partner to strangle him in his bath, and that eventually did work. Yeah, they must have really hated that guy. Not a fan. So, yeah. well, that's that's about it. How do yeah. You, how do we how do we do? I think it went good today. Hopefully, yeah. you guys out there all enjoyed listening. Yeah. So now it's time for our last section of the podcast, which is our nerd outreach. So. Yeah, so I think, as usual, we got to thank Clayton High School for letting us use the facilities. I want to thank my wife and my daughter for allowing me to be up here. Also want to thank uh, my podcast partner. This is episode number seven, so I think we're getting better each time, yeah. hopefully. So, Justin, thanks for doing this with me. Thank you, too, as well. Doing doing some good work, Josh. Yeah, well, look at us. So, where, where you can hear us, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just jump on there and search Nerd is the New Cool Podcast, and you'll be able to download any of our episodes. Yeah, and if you want to contact us, like or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Nerd is the New CO2. If you have any future show suggestions, uh, please send them via email to Nerd is the New Cool Podcast at gmail.com or on any of our socials using the hashtag Nerd is the New Cool Podcast. Yeah, and all right, guys, thanks for listening. Let's go, Blues. That's right. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.